The talk tonight is on karma and the end of karma. The Dalai Lama was asked once uh, if he had to choose, uh, would he t teach Westerners first about karma or about emptiness, which was more important? And he said, if I could only teach about one, I would teach them about karma. So we've spent quite a bit of time talking about emptiness on this retreat, but we haven't spent a lot of time talking about karma. So maybe by the Dalai Lama's instructions, we've kind of missed the boat. But uh, tonight I want to try and uh, rectify that a little bit. Why is the teaching on karma so important, especially for us as Westerners? A, because it's not a teaching that we're very familiar with in this culture, and B, because it really is the science of happiness. Karma teaches us a clear road to happiness of whatever our aspiration can be, whether it's for regular human happiness or for um, divine happiness or for the happiness of, of liberation. I want to preface this talk by saying that some of what I'll talk about tonight is beyond my personal experience and the personal experience of most people that I know. So I'm going to be relating to you uh, things that are in the Buddhist teachings, but which I haven't been able to personally verify. And I'm not trying to convince you you should believe in them. I want to make that clear up front. Whether you believe in them or not is up to you, and it's not my job to make you believe. It's just my job to tell you what the Buddha said, and then you can decide for yourself. So don't feel like you have to subscribe to anything that's in the talk tonight. And also don't feel you have to figure it out this very evening. A lot of these concepts may be new, so just let them settle, take them in, and try to keep an open mind. But I do want to convince you that karma is your best friend along this path. Karma is really your only friend along this path of awakening. <laughs> so I'm going to divide the talk into four parts. Karma and the concept itself. What the Buddha said about the results of karma. How it relates to anatta, the teaching of no fixed self. And what's meant by this mysterious pointing to the end of karma. These are the four areas I want to cover. So what is karma? Karma is a Sanskrit word. The Pali word is kama. So if you read the Buddhist text from Pali, the word will be kama, but they're identical. They, they mean the same. And it was another one of these words, a common Indian word, that the Buddha took and put a special meaning to. And the Indian word simply means action. That's all it means. Karma means action in Sanskrit. Kama means action in Pali. It's a standard concept in many Indian dialects. But the Buddha put a new spin on it. At, his, at the time of his teachings, there were many philosophical schools in northern India, and every one of them had their own take on what action meant, what karma meant. And there was a really wide range of philosophical views. Um, people would say things like, um, karma matters or it doesn't matter. Action has consequences or it doesn't have any consequences. Uh, it's pre all our action is predetermined. 
All our action is freely chosen. These turned out to all be speculative views because most of the teachers at the time didn't know from direct experience what they were talking about. They made up ideas and philosophies and propounded them. The Buddha put a different spin on the word and the, the orig his originality in constructing this, he said, came from his own insight, his own understanding. What it meant in the Buddha's um, definition was action with volition, or you could say intention. And the Pali word here is chaitana, and it's the same word that we've been using in the meditation instructions when we talk about mindfulness of intention. Chaitana. And this is uh, how he defined it in uh, one of the passages. Volition, O bhikkhus, is what I call action. For through volition, one performs the action. So this was a new concept. All the uh, emphasis in other philosophies at the time was about the action itself. But the Buddha's particular emphasis was on what is the intention or the volition behind the action? Where does it come from as a motivation? Synonyms for this word of intention or volition you could take to be urge, motive, impulse, will, or motivation. So you get the impression it's the mental energy that drives the outer action. Although, in fact, um, thoughts themselves and emotions are also actions. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the Buddha said that actions are wholesome or unwholesome depending on what this inner force is that drives them. If the inner force is wholesome, it's considered a wholesome karmic action. If the inner force is unwholesome, it's considered an unwholesome karmic action. As you probably can guess, the unwholesome actions are influenced by these three kilesas, the roots of the unwholesome, which are our old friends, greed, aversion, and delusion. And wholesome volition is that volition that comes out of their opposites. The opposite of greed being renunciation, or you could say generosity, letting go in its different forms. The opposite of aversion being loving kindness, the opposite of delusion being wisdom. So the wholesome roots are renunciation, loving kindness, and wisdom. So it, in the Buddha's teaching, it's not the action in and of itself, but rather the motivation behind it. So just a couple of simple examples. An infant is sleeping in its bed, rolls over, and in its sleep knocks over a candle. And the candle catches fire to the drapes, and the fire burns the house down. The baby is, of course, saved. I want you to understand that. Baby's been rescued. Okay, don't worry. But the house is burned down. Okay, this is not a particularly good outcome, but there is no unwholesome intention behind that knocking the candle over, so there's no karmic uh, impact for the infant. There's no karma in that action. It was just an accident. Or we could take an action like someone cutting another person through the abdomen with a very sharp knife and blood spews out. 
Is that wholesome or unwholesome? Depends on the intention. If a surgeon is performing an operation to remove uh, inflamed appendix, that's a wholesome action based on compassion. If a thief has cut the person in order to subdue them to steal their property, that's an unwholesome action. So the root that we judge by is the wholesomeness of the intention. And also to be aware that some actions have mixed motives. You know, we can see this a lot. We give someone a gift, there's generosity, but maybe we also want some gratitude in return. So often actions have mixed motives, and that means that they have a mixture of wholesome and unwholesome uh, motivations. So I think what's interesting about this formulation of the Buddhas is that he's pointing to the fact that actions coming out of mental impulses in themselves have moral weight. There are morally wholesome and morally unwholesome actions based on the impulses that they come from. And this has a lot of big implications, which we'll get to. So the Buddha considered that action could take place in three spheres. Thought, speech, and body. So we're normally used to considering actions of speech and actions of body. But the Buddha said actions of mind can also be volitional. So that means that thoughts sometimes come out of a motivation. Emotions sometimes express a motivation. For instance, a motive behind desire is to gain something pleasurable. The motive behind aversion is to get rid of something unpleasant. But just so you don't get too paranoid in terms of your meditation, actions of thought have relatively little weight compared to actions of speech and body. So if, you know, let's say you're angry at somebody, the thoughts are kind of um, angry, but if you don't express it in speech and you don't express it in action, it means you don't blast the person and you don't punch the person, the, the karmic effect of the thought itself is relatively weak. It's not non-existent, but compared to the other actions, it's, it's relatively small. So fortunately, the Buddha was very clear about what kinds of actions are skillful and what kinds are not. And he made a list, it appears many times in the text, of what he called the ten unwholesome actions. And of these, um, there are three related to bodily action, four related to actions of speech, and three related to actions of mind. And this is very helpful because we can understand that these are the ones we need to be careful with. We've already worked some with this topic in exploring conduct and the precepts, and some of them link very closely to the precepts, but it gets more even refined through this list. And some relate to the mind, which we haven't talked about so much. So here are the ten unwholesome actions. The three unskillful actions of body are killing living beings, taking what isn't freely offered or given, and sexual misconduct harming others through our sexuality. And you can clearly see these form the first three of the five lay precepts. Then there are four actions of speech that the Buddha considered unwholesome. Speaking what isn't true, using harsh or abusive speech towards someone, 
speaking maliciously of others to undermine uh, their reputation, and wasting time in what he called idle speech and gossip. So you can sort of get the flavor of this is like, you know, gossip using the events of other people's lives just for entertainment and uh, stimulation and kind of judgment. And then he identified three actions of mind. Uh, covetousness, which is wanting something that belongs to another. Ill will, which is wishing someone harm. And the third is quite interesting, wrong view. If we don't understand the world the way it is, which forms right view, the first element in the Eightfold Path, if we don't understand the way the world is, we have wrong view, and that becomes the basis for our relationship with life. If we understand the nature of life incorrectly, that becomes an unwholesome basis for actions. So these are the ten unwholesome actions, and the wholesome actions, the ten wholesome actions, are simply to refrain from the ten unwholesome. So it's, it's pretty clear. Then in addition, there are a lot of wholesome actions that go beyond this, but the basic list of ten is uh, to refrain from the unwholesome. So these teachings on um, karma and skillful action, very, very helpful to reflect on and take care with in our life in the world. You know, as we've already discussed, the precepts form guidelines that protect us and protect others. And the Buddha said that one who has taken real care with their conduct in the world enjoys what he called the bliss of blamelessness. And he considered this a very high source of happiness in life. That when we are so careful with our conduct that we don't have regrets about the way we have treated others, then we feel this freedom from remorse and freedom from guilt that has a very um, pleasant quality, which is the bliss of blamelessness. I mentioned in a talk a while ago how the Dalai Lama had this quality. And someone else who I thought also had this was Deepama. You know, Deepama was this uh, wonderful Indian teacher from Calcutta uh, who visited IMS, I think, in uh, 1980 on her first trip to America. And Carol and I had an opportunity to look after her at that time. We had been on staff at IMS, and so we were asked to look after her for a month when she first arrived. We were all living together in a house in Western Mass. So I had the chance to see her in a lot of different situations, uh, some situations that would have been trying for me. But I never saw the slightest flicker of anger in her, or even impatience. And I particularly remember a visit. We uh, took her and her family. She also had a daughter and a grandson with her at the time, we took them shopping in a department store near Amherst. And the grandson was about, I think he was about four years old at the time, and he was a very rowdy four years old. So he was loose in this American department store. I don't think he'd ever been in one before, and it was you know, kind of spacious and quite big and fun. So he was running down the aisles, and there would be shirts falling off and hangers clattering to the ground. And then Deepama was running along behind him, both to you know, pick things up and try and catch him. And her white skirt was flapping out behind her as she ran down the aisle. And on her face was just this sweet little smile. 
There was no frustration, irritation, impatience, anger, just a very sweet attitude toward her, toward her grandson. So in the whole month that we were together, never saw anything approaching you know, impatience or irritation in her. So she was someone who, as far as I could tell, really enjoyed this bliss of blamelessness. And she was a very, very happy and contented person. So this is the quality of the action itself, really taking care not to harm, not to, even with our thoughts, um, harm ourselves through the unwholesome actions. Then the reason this is important is that actions have consequences in the Buddha's teachings. So let's talk a little bit about results. So I'm sure you're familiar with this basic concept, wholesome actions lead to wholesome results in our lives. Unwholesome actions lead to unwholesome results in our lives. So wholesome actions lead to happiness. Unwholesome actions lead to unhappiness for ourselves. This is really clearly stated by the Buddha in one of the uh, first passages in the Dhammapada, where he says, Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with an impure mind, and sorrow will follow you, like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. So this is the basic message of karma and result. Wholesome actions lead to happiness, Unwholesome actions lead to unhappiness. And it's kind of interesting that this, is, this notion is becoming fairly well known um, in modern culture, the, the basic outline of it. James and I, some years ago, were teaching a series of classes at a juvenile hall in California. It was the basis, actually that work was the basis for what later became the Mind Body Awareness Project and the Lineage Project. And we were invited in by a student of James who, who worked there. And it was very interesting. For those of you who don't know um, America, um, Juvenile Hall is where people stay when they've been arrested and charged with a crime uh, if they're under the age of 18. So these were teenagers, mostly 15, 16, 17-year-olds. But we were in the maximum security wing. So they were young guys who had been arrested for, charged with crimes like uh, theft, um, armed robbery, assault, and murder. And fortunately, we had a very good ally who worked with, the, um, worked with the young people and supported our being there. Otherwise, I don't know if we would have had the nerve to do it. But it was, it was a very good experience for us. So we'd done the whole class series on you know, mindfulness and um, following the breath and be, how to be with difficult emotions. They were a very appreciative audience because they had a lot of time on their hands. And also they were young and um, in this very scary situation where a judge could you know, put them away for a long, long time. So they, a lot of emotions were up for them. A lot of uh, fear, anxiety, uncertainty in their lives. So they were very receptive to, to the teachings. And then we got to the last class, and uh, James and I talked to each other and said, should we talk about karma? You know, I don't know how that would go down. 
You know, because we were also going to talk about sila if we talked about karma. And uh, we just decided to go for it. So we taught them about, started teaching about karma and this understanding that wholesome actions lead to happiness. And we just sort of said, you know, does this sound like something you've ever heard before? And one of the guys, one of the young guys said, oh, you mean what goes around comes around? Sure. You know, we've heard that. So that that was pretty cool. That's already out there in the vernacular. What goes around comes around. That's the essence of it. So this sense of things coming around is also expressed in the Tibetan tradition in their phrases for metta and compassion. Tibetans also work with the Brahmaviharas, the same ones that we work with, but they have a little different name. They call them the four immeasurables because all the Brahmaviharas are considered to be boundless or immeasurable states. So the Tibetan phrases for metta and compassion weave in this teaching on karma. So let me read you the phrases and you'll see. This is the phrase for metta. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. And this is the phrase for compassion. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. And what's interesting about this formulation, the way the Buddha expressed it, the way the Tibetan phrases express it, is it applies to all beings. And in that way, in the Buddha's description of it, it's a universal law. So it doesn't matter whether you believe in this or not. It applies. It doesn't matter whether you know it's true or not. It applies. It doesn't matter if your religion believes in it or not. It applies. It doesn't matter if your culture believes in it or not. It applies. In fact, our whole growth in the path is dependent on this law. So it's kind of good that it applies for us. So, you know, there are these universal laws, and the Buddha's whole teaching was really about discovering them and revealing them. He did not teach speculative views. He taught things that he understood directly to be the way things are. Another of those universal laws we talked about last week with Mahagosananda's handing out the pamphlets and chanting with his Cambodian refugees on the Thai border, hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. This is an ancient and eternal law. Another phrase from the Dhammapada, one of the Buddha's teachings. So this understanding that um, virtue is the cause of happiness and non-virtue is the cause of unhappiness is reflected in the phrase for the equanimity practice in the Brahmaviharas. There are different phrases for loving kindness, for compassion, for appreciative joy, and for equanimity. And the equanimity phrase is directly related to the teaching on karma. I'll read it to you. This is the phrase we use for the equanimity meditation. All beings are the heirs to their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their own past actions more than on my wishes for them. This is the classical phrase. Sometimes this isn't so easy, so we soften it for people. But 
for now, we'll talk about it as the classical approach. This is a very useful practice for um, if you have friends or family members who you always see making the kinds of choices you wish they wouldn't. You know, most people know one or two people like this. You wish you could kind of get in their control center when they're about to make the next major choice in their life. Say, don't do that. That's not the wise way to go. And then you kind of watch the effects of it as it plays out you know, in their life some months or years later. But as you repeat this phrase, you kind of understand people make their own choices. And they're going to keep making their own choices. And some of them don't help them. Some of their choices lead to their own unhappiness. So this phrase gives us some equanimity about acknowledging that everybody has their own journey and their own um, direction in life based on their choices. And it brings about a sense of acceptance. So this phrase for equanimity, the Buddha actually stated even more strongly in his teaching. And I'll read this passage. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. And the word here, of course, is kama, but it means action with volition. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Their actions are their friend, their refuge. Whatever acts they perform, for good or for ill, of those they will be the heirs. This is a powerful message. Our actions are the womb from which we are born. Our very being, kind of moment after moment, emerges from our own past actions. A huge sense of personal responsibility in that formulation. And Westerners often feel a strong uh, resistance to this notion. I think because it's not so familiar in our culture and also because we have a very uh, kind of democratic understanding of the way things ought to be. For those of you who aren't uh, from this country, you might not know the very beginning of the American Declaration of Independence from 1776 when America formally separated from Great Britain, starts off, I'm just paraphrasing a little, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. So this is a very deep notion in our culture, the notion of the equality of all human beings, and a very noble and inspiring one. But sometimes it leads on, I think, it leaves a little bit of an impression that all beings should be equally happy. And that doesn't work. I mean, things just don't work that way. So this teaching on karma, which basically says that we have a lot of personal responsibility for our situation, can seem cold, can seem indifferent, uh, uncaring, and like it kind of glosses over a number of ways that suffering comes to us. We'll explain this a little more as we go along. But one of the, one of the ways some, this is sometimes felt in the West, anyway, is that it means if you're unhappy, you deserve it. The beings deserve to suffer. That is not in the notion of karma, and it's not in the Buddha's teaching 
I don't think it was at all in his intention in delivering this, this teaching. I, I strongly believe if he had had the ability to reach into the heart of everyone he met and pluck out the source of suffering, he would have done it in an instant. I mean, a good example of this is his relationship with Angulimala. Angulimala was a formal spiritual student who got some bad instruction. And on the advice of his spiritual teacher, murdered 999 people and collected a finger from each person that he'd killed in a necklace, which he wore around his neck. And that's the literal meaning of his name, Angulimala. And he intended to kill the Buddha as his 1,000th and final victim. The Buddha was walking near Angulimala's hangout place in the deep forest. His friend said, don't go there. That murderer is going to get you. But the Buddha said, I'm, I'm not worried, and he, he went there. He met Angulimala and avoided being killed. Angulimala was so taken with his presence and his centeredness that he asked the Buddha for teaching. So if the Buddha thought Angulimala deserved to suffer, he would have said, no, you just live out your karma. You're going to have a really bad road, but you deserve it. But that's not what happened. The Buddha taught him the Dhamma. He ordained Angulimala. Angulimala practiced and became awakened. End of the basic mass of suffering through his awakening. Now, interestingly, when Angulimala went on alms round, he was attacked by local people who knew him as a murderer. And he came back to the Buddha and said, why are these people attacking me? The Buddha said, that's your karma. But he had freed his heart and mind from suffering. So the teaching on karma does not mean anyone deserves to suffer, but it's just pointing to a law. You know, expecting this law not to operate would be like expecting the law of gravity not to operate. It would be like expecting an apple to get ripe and come off a tree in the orchard down the road and not fall to the ground. You can't arrest the law of gravity and you can't arrest the law of karma. It just happens. So another way that karma is sometimes heard or felt is that it, um, it seems to provide an excuse or a rationale for not caring. It's as though, you know, it's as though we have to think, oh, well, that person is suffering, but um, that's their karma. So it's their problem, therefore, that's not my problem. That's not what the teaching of karma is about either. That is called indifference. Compassion recognizes suffering and wants to help, and it doesn't care what the cause is. The cause could be something from outside, something um, accidental. It could be something in one's own body, an illness. It could be mental afflictions. It could be something karmic. Compassion doesn't care the source. It sees suffering and it wants to alleviate it. Using a rationale like, oh, that's their karma, so that's their problem, 
to turn off the feeling of compassion is called indifference. And indifference in the Brahma-viharas is recognized as the near enemy of equanimity. In other words, when equanimity isn't ripe and it falls into an unwholesome state that mimics it, it falls into indifference. And so what that means is if we're feeling indifferent and sort of rationalizing why we don't need to help somebody, then our equanimity isn't, isn't right. Equanimity supports metta and compassion, but also metta and compassion need to suffuse equanimity. And if they don't, it gets too cold and turns into indifference. So in that case, there needs to be a suffusion of compassion that will kind of fill out the equanimity and ripen it so that there's balance, but also caring. And the heart uh, can respond to the suffering that we meet. So these results of actions happen in at least six ways. And I want to go through the six ways that um, they're seen and described. The first is that before we act, we pick up the energy of the action that we're thinking of doing. So if we're thinking about being generous with someone or kind with someone, even as we contemplate that action, it feels good. It uplifts us. It makes us happy to think about helping other people. Similarly, if we think about doing an action that's not kind, that's going to hurt somebody, it feels kind of creepy. I work on a bunch of different committees, both at IMS and at Spirit Rock. And um, one time, we had a phone call about what to do about a certain situation. And so all of us, it wasn't clear cut. And so we were all kind of giving our opinions about what we should do. And I put forth one opinion, and somebody else on the call put forth a different opinion, which is fine. I don't mind being disagreed with. But afterwards, the person sent me an email about the topic, restating the disagreement, but in a way that I felt was really dismissive of my view and I felt as disrespectful. And I felt it was very clear from the email. That was really dismissive and kind of disrespectful. So I didn't feel so, so good about it. And the first thing that occurred to me was, I think I'll forward this email to the rest of the committee. And I thought, oh, then they'll see the unskillful nature of my opponent's argument. And that will sway them to come to my side of the argument. But as soon as I saw that my motivation was basically to undermine the person, I couldn't send the email. So I didn't. I didn't forward it. And then I called the person up and talked about it, but I didn't forward the email because it just felt creepy to think about doing that. The second way that we feel this effect of karma is in doing the action itself. When we're in the process of giving to someone or helping someone, it feels great. Um, a staff person was collecting their wood for uh, the winter, and they asked if any other staff would like to help them come and stack. It ended up being three and a half cords of wood, you know, which is a lot of work. And so a bunch of staff people came over and, and helped them. And in return, they, they, his friends offered them some, some nice food. And at the end of the day, the staff who had come to help thanked 
the people who needed their wood stacked. And part of it was for the food, but also because it just feels good to give. It feels good to help. And in a way, they were thanking them for the opportunity to be of service, to be a community. So giving feels good, helping feels good, hurting somebody feels painful. If you reflect on times that it's happened and you look at the state of heart and mind in that moment, it's contracted, it's very unhappy, it's a state of suffering. Our friend Sylvia Borstein has a nice phrase, which is, anyone causing great harm, anyone causing great pain, sorry, is themselves in great pain. And this is true. And reflecting on this can sometimes open a little bit of a doorway for compassion. The third way is when we've done an action and we reflect back on it. We feel the happiness or unhappiness of it. So when we give the instructions of um, sending metta to yourself, we often say reflect on your skillful actions in the past. Reflect on ways you've been generous. Reflect on ways that you've helped people. And when you do that, you feel good about yourself. You remember the joy in doing something that helps another. And that creates a, a good quality that allows the metta to grow more easily. And then similarly, as we come into a long retreat and a lot of silence, we will often remember things that we've done in the past that have hurt other people. You know, the forgiveness practice has a whole element that's directed to that recollection. And so remembering the ways that we've hurt others becomes very, very painful as we get sensitive and attuned to the precepts and the wish to not harm and the value of loving kindness. Those moments in our life when we haven't been able to, to live by those values are very, very painful to feel. We often feel a lot of guilt or remorse at that time. The fourth way that you can see the influence of karma is that as we treat other people, our actions come back in that relationship. So if in relationship to people you tend to be friendly and warm and generous, then people welcome you and want to see you and are open with you, value being with you. If you are uh, irritable, judgmental, unfriendly, then people remember that. And when you meet them again, they'll step back and eventually close off to, to feeling you, to letting you in. So our actions come back to us in relationship. That's also karmic. The fifth way we see it is what I would call, describe as habitual states of mind. When we uh, go over and over certain patterns of thinking and feeling, those are actions that come from uh, intention or volition. And those actions create a pattern that then repeats itself almost automatically, almost compulsively. This is another quotation from the Buddha. Because whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of sense desire, ill will, or cruelty, then their mind inclines to thoughts of sense desire, ill will, or cruelty. 
If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of renunciation, kindness, and compassion, then their mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. So through our habitual ways of thinking and feeling, we wear a groove in the mind that makes it easy to fall back into again and again. This is the fifth way we can see the effect. Then there's the sixth way, which is that according to the Buddha, actions that we do for good or for ill can have kind of mysterious results in the future. Results that we can't see or understand. But he said they do happen. And he described them quite clearly. And these are the, this is the sixth way, is the way that we can't experientially verify the law of karma. But the Buddha said very clearly these things happen. I'll get to some specifics a little later. For instance, how is it that acting out of kindness brings happiness? It's kind of mysterious, isn't it? And yet, that's the basic teaching of that passage from the Dhammapada, that it does. So what I find so interesting about um, this whole teaching, and it's pointing to the effects of wholesome and unwholesome actions, is that what the Buddha is saying, as I understand it, is that this concept of good and ill, which is morality, is woven into the very fabric of the universe. It's not something accidental. It's not just an adaptive mechanism of evolution. But it is within the center of the laws of sentient life. Wherever there are sentient beings, these actions and their results will apply. Now, in the beginning, the teaching of karma can seem kind of um, cold, impersonal, or uncaring. But as I felt into the message here, what it really means is we live in a moral universe where morality is one of the central features of sentient existence. And that started feeling to me like a universe with a heart. That feels to me like a caring universe. And then when I reflected on the idea that there was no morality in the universe, that the universe was essentially cold and amoral, that started to feel to me very uncaring and very heartless. So as I felt into this teaching on karma more, it warmed up the whole universe for me. It gave it a sense of a beating heart kind of right at the center of all of sentient life. Now the Buddha said that actions play out in complicated ways that we can't figure out. He said that the results of karma are one of what he called four imponderables. And he said if you try to figure this stuff out, you will go mad and experience vexation. I'm not sure in which order, but either, either way, the outcome is not so great. So there's no point in trying to figure out how this works. It's beyond our scope. Of, it's beyond the scope of reason 
The Buddha said he could intuit it through insight, but it's beyond the scope of reason. The three other imponderables, in case you're interested, are the range of the mind of a Buddha, the kinds of things that a Buddha can see, the beginning of things, which I take to be the origin of the physical universe. And he said the power of a concentrated mind, impossible to figure out. So these imponderables have to leave us a little bit humble. And the, the teaching on karma does get misused sometimes. Like you've probably had this experience that someone you know gets sick and a friend of theirs will say, trying to be helpful, I guess, something like, oh, that's your karma. And how does that make the person who's sick feel? Wow, not very good. Like I have to blame myself for this illness now. But saying that, you know, a statement like that's your karma, that's just a speculative view. We can't see that. And the Buddha never said that. He was asked at one point, so does everything that happens to us in the way of pleasant or unpleasant feeling, does it all come from past action? And he said, you can't say that. He said, because you can see for yourself that there are other causes for pleasant and painful feelings. He said, illness of the body is a cause for painful feeling. Climate is a cause for pleasant or painful. Diet can be a cause. Accident can be a cause. And assault or attack can be a cause. So these are all causes for pleasant and unpleasant feeling. And karma is another cause. So this is the way we understand it. It's not that everything in the universe happens because of karma. There are lots of other kinds of causes. We could call them physical, chemical, biological, genetic, climatological, etc. Lots of other causes of things that happen. And karma is one as well. But not everything that happens to us is because of karma. The Buddha said pretty clearly. So I think the way to hold this teaching is to take it in broad terms and mostly looking forward. Knowing that wholesome actions will lead to more happiness, unwholesome actions will lead to more unhappiness. Looking forward. It doesn't work so good as a rearview mirror. Like, how did I get here? Well, it must have been that karmic action. I don't think so. We can't see that. The Buddha said that he could in certain cases, but we can't. So speculating on that doesn't really take us anywhere. So not so useful to use it in that way. So there are these six ways that we can describe the workings of karma, six ways we can see the results. And when somebody says, I don't believe in karma, usually what they mean is, I don't believe in this sixth kind, this kind of mysterious kind that the Buddha talked about that we can't see directly. But the other five, we can see and understand. So I wouldn't just take it on faith that we don't believe in karma, if that's our inclination. We don't believe in one small slice, perhaps, of the teaching on, on karma. So you may or may not resonate with this teaching at this point. It took me a lot of years of hanging out with it and observing and reflecting on it over a long period of time 
to get confidence in this teaching. And at this point, I have a lot of confidence in this teaching. I've looked at my own life. I've looked at the lives of a lot of my friends over 30, 35 years. And I have a lot of confidence in this, in this message. But it took me a while to get there. So what I'd recommend is if you feel uh, unsure about this, just let your mind open to the possibility. You know, you could just close off and say, that's not true. I don't believe that. But this that's not true thing, we don't know either. So to say that's not true is just another view and opinion. There's no basis from which you can know that. So the proper attitude, as I understand it, is just to stay open, consider it as a possibility, and watch as your life unfolds and as you practice the Dharma and see what you think. Just hang out with the possibility and consider, consider and reflect on it. So then the next place that this leads, of course, is the question of rebirth. Because to fully understand the workings of karma, for it to fully play out, it has to be seen across lifetimes. We look at a figure like Hitler, for example. We don't, I don't see enough suffering in this lifetime proportionate to his, um, his misdeeds. So in order to consider where the karmic result might be taking place proportionate to his actions, I have to look at a future life. And the Buddha described this again and again also. So as I understand it, rebirth is um, needed to make full sense of karma. Of course, you can understand it in a more limited way in one lifetime, but really to understand the fullness of it, I think it helps to understand it in the prospect of several lives. So I was also skeptical about rebirth when I came in contact with these teachings, but I didn't close my mind to it. I just said, I don't know the situation here. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. And again, it's just a concept I hung out with over a lot of years and became more and more um, appreciative of. So now I don't know what happens when I die. As Ajahn Sumedho said, I haven't died yet. How could I know? <laughs> but I have a certain confidence in this teaching also. But again, it may, may not be true for you. So the Buddha said a few things about the actions in future lives. He said that if one is generous in this life, one will experience now or in a future life an abundance in material things. If one is stingy and not prone to giving, then in this life or future life, one will experience a lack of abundance in material things. If one takes care and doesn't kill living beings, then at some point one will experience a long lifespan, kind of reflecting that commitment to to life. If one is non-injuring of living beings, at some point one will experience health over a, over a lifespan. Again, in relation to um, karma and its influence in future lives, the Buddha put it this way, uh, grain uh, was a form of wealth in the agricultural society 2,500 years ago in India. So it's one of the ways he points to wealth here. 
grain, possessions, money, all the things you love, servants, workers, and dependents, none of these can you take with you. You must cast them all aside at death. But whatever comma is made by you, whether by body, speech, or mind, that is your real possession, and you must fare according to that comma. That comma will follow you just as the shadow follows its owner. Therefore, do good actions, gather benefit for the future. Goodness is the mainstay of beings after death. So again, I can't tell you to believe this or not, but the Buddha said that it would be a good bet to make. Because if rebirth turns out to be true, you'll be well positioned. If it turns out not to be true, you'll have done good in this life and you'll be loved and respected. So rebirth also raises the question of who is reborn? And in a way it relates to the question of karma also. And this question on karma was addressed to the Buddha in his lifetime. A bhikkhu approached him and said, what self then will actions performed by the not-self affect? It's a good question, isn't it? What self will the actions performed by the not-self affect? And the Buddha said, basically, you haven't been listening to me. And that was really all he said. But it's a... It's a great question, isn't it? So in order to kind of understand this, both about karma and about rebirth, kind of think about the way your experience unfolds moment after moment in meditation. You're observing very carefully and you see everything is changing. Body sensations, sounds, thoughts, emotions. Nothing is solid from one moment to the next. Nothing is fixed. And yet, there's kind of an ongoing continuity, isn't there? There's some way in which, you know, my experience at the end of a meditation is kind of like my experience has been for a while. I don't turn into the Dalai Lama as a result of one sitting meditation. There's a kind of way that there's a continuity going on, we could say, of a pattern. There's kind of a pattern in my experience, even though everything is changing. So we might say that this pattern is what continues in us moment by moment because one moment of experience touches and conditions the next, touches and conditions the next, touches and conditions the next. Nothing solid or fixed all the way through, but there is a conditioning process that creates an ongoing appearance of patterns. This is basically how rebirth happens also. Nothing is fixed, but there is some way that the pattern is transmitted to the next birth. So Ajahn Amaro had a really nice way of saying this. He said, the process of going from one life to the next is not very different from the process of going from one moment to the next. So you can reflect on that. I think that's a great pointer. But let's talk a little more about how this unfolds. Think about a river or a stream. If you like, think about that stream that flows from a little pond at the end of the parking lot. It's kind of fun to watch a stream and ask, where's the stream? 
What is a stream? Because we could call that, you know, we could call that the IMS stream and it would have a name. And it means something to us. If we say the IMS stream, you know what I'm talking about. It's different from, say, the Connecticut River, which is much bigger, has a lot more water. It's also dirtier. But if you look at the IMS stream, is there anything solid there? Is there anything that stays the same from moment to moment? It's all changing, isn't it? What was it? Her Heraclitus said you never step in the same stream twice. It's totally different water, moment after moment after moment. Nothing is the same in that stream from one moment to the next, yet it sort of forms a predictable shape, or we could say pattern. There might even be an eddy that's in the same place all the time, even though it's completely different water. So we can also use this concept of a stream for our inner experience. We can call it a mind stream. And we look into it, and there are thoughts and emotions and sense impressions going by moment after moment after moment. Nothing's fixed, yet this mind stream that we call mine is different from that mind stream that we call yours. This mind stream has certain recognizable patterns and eddies. Your mind stream has certain recognizable patterns and eddies. Even though there's nothing fixed, there's no self at the center of it all. And personality is basically just this collection of feelings, thoughts, speech, and actions, right? Isn't that basically what personality is? So personality is kind of the total sum of our karmic patterns, just unfolding from this mind stream as it rolls on. So our mind stream, when we come into the Dharma, is headed one place, and that is Lake Samsara. <laughs> Driven by greed, aversion, and ignorance, is just heading again and again to Lake Samsara. And we know what keeps it going. Greed, aversion, delusion, keep it on that track. That's our pattern, that's a destination. But then the teachings of the Dharma come in. And the teachings of the Dharma in the beginning are just this little tributary that come in from one side and add a different kind of current to it. We start adding the current of mindfulness, a current of metta, of compassion, of renunciation, of tranquility, of generosity. And in the beginning, these don't seem to affect the basic flow very much. They're kind of a minor impact. But as time goes on, these things become really strong. And all of you who have been here for five weeks now, they've become very strong in your mind stream. You are now not headed toward Lake Samsara. You are headed to the Nirvanic Ocean. <laughs> and as this tributary becomes stronger and stronger, it totally changes the direction of our mind streams and leads us in an entirely new way. So the only way this can happen is because there's nothing fixed here to begin with. If our ignorance was fixed, if our craving was fixed, if our aversion was fixed, this tributary couldn't move the direction of this current. But they're not. They're also conditioned and subject to change. So this new stream that comes in starts to take us in an entirely different way. 
an entirely different direction. And we start to see that Dharma practice is basically using the power of karma for personal transformation. Because these are all intentional actions that we undertake through our thoughts and feelings. The intention for mindfulness, the intention for metta, the intention for calm, the intention for renunciation. We act these over and over and over again. And it's a karmic unfolding that that's able to change the direction of our mind stream. Another way to say this is the path itself is a karmic unfolding. And without the law of karma, this path couldn't unfold the way that it does. This great Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, put it this way. I love this expression. He was in a dialogue, I think with a Westerner, and said, your own will has been the backbone of your destiny. This is a lot like the equanimity phrase. Your choices have been the backbone of your happiness and unhappiness. And the questioner replied, well, surely karma interfered. And Maharaj said, karma shapes the circumstances of your life. The attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. This is profound. Your character shapes your life. And ultimately, you alone can shape your character. This is what we're engaged in here, is shaping our character, moment after moment after moment, with these very powerful and wholesome intentions. And as we do that, the whole shape of our life is changed. Eventually, it ends in this direction, rather cryptically expressed by the Buddha as the end of karma. The Buddha said that one who is fully awakened has come to the end of karma. And by that I understand the end of self-centered volition or intention. And what is it that takes us there? He said it is this noble eightfold path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration that is the way leading to the end of karma. And so we start to understand how sila, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom start to still our being. We come into a place of so much peace and so much stillness that the urge to act on behalf of ourself goes away. And we trust in that stillness and that abandoning of individual will. And we feel then that we're at this place where the Buddha described Nibbana as the stilling of all formations. And we start to feel we're in close proximity to that. And so we let go the individual volition, the self-centered willfulness, and surrender to that stillness. And that has the power to reveal to us something else beyond karma, beyond conditioning, beyond the individual. The power to reveal to us the unconditioned nibbana, the real stilling of all formations. 
we trust in that. We trust in that stillness, the ending of karma. Let's just sit for a moment, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.